This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family, we are... Um, in a place, in a passage of scripture that we're going to walk through that I would argue may be some of the most important truths uh, that, that is so vitally necessary for us to live fruitful lives. If you don't know anything else, this is one place where if we don't get this right, we do not get our relationship with God right, and we do not get our relationship with each other right. If we don't understand these principles here, the rest of what we do, I would argue, does not matter. And so we're going to preach about an area that I think we struggle with the most, I would argue. I think this is an area that we have maybe even been taught incorrectly, myself included. And so again, if we don't understand what it is to be sorry, we will not understand what it is to know God and to love each other. How do we be sorry? Now, we're not asking how to say I'm sorry, because we all can do that. The real question is, what does it mean to substantively be in a place and have a a heart posture that is genuinely sorrowful? And maybe we'll put it this way. When wrongdoing occurs, whether you are the offender or the offended, what does it mean to be sorry? What does it mean to be sorry for uh, offending God? What does it mean to be sorry for offending others? What does it even mean if you're the offended? How do you identify sorrow in the one who has offended you? These are important questions for us because if we don't understand this, listen, There's no question that as long as we are imperfect beings, we are going to be offended and we are going to offend. And the majority of that, uh, those offenses will be rooted in our own sin. So what do we do? What do we do when those sins have been uh, shared with us? When people have approached us and say, I'm offended by this, what you've done has caused this kind of pain. Here are the impacts of your sin. How should we respond? And again, what should we be looking for in those who have offended us in order to not only forgive, but what does genuine reconciliation look like? Because without any of those things, without genuine uh, uh, acknowledgement of sin and without genuine repentance, There can't be actual reconciliation. So what does that look like? And is there a difference even between forgiveness and reconciliation? All of these things we need to understand because if we don't, we do grave damage to each other and grave damage to our relationship with God. And so we're going to go to a passage that we have talked about before, but we felt like it was necessary again for us to always go back through these same truths because these are rhythms that we have to keep perfecting and and grow in. 
And so when you when you uh, talking about forgiveness and talking about repentance is so important when you consider the last letters that God gives to the churches in Revelation. And you look at Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, you see this common command throughout the letters to these churches. And that is the command to repent. Remember what God said to the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love, repent. Remember what he said to the church at Pergamum, you tolerate idolatry, repent. Thyatira, you tolerate Jezebel, the adulteress, repent. The church at Sardis, you are dead in your deeds. Wake up and repent. Laodicea, you are lukewarm. Repent. This call to repent is a command to every one of us. Every single one of us should have a regular rhythm of repentance. And we should actually be drawn to one another, not just because of what gifts we have and not just because of what can be brought. Another part of being drawn to one is I'm drawn to, to a person who has the humility that is made manifest by their rhythms of repentance. When you are someone that has these rhythms of repentance, I tell couples all the time when they're uh, uh, wanting to get married or even couples that are married, it is vitally important that we are aware of the ways in which we are prone to hide and pretend. And then we need to be aware of what those rhythms of repentance are when we hide and, and pretend. That's how genuine intimacy gets built. So here's another thing. You can't have genuine intimacy when there is no genuine repentance. You can't have genuine connection and relationship when there is not genuine repentance. You cannot have true reconciliation unless there's genuine repentance. So what is God always telling you? What is God always telling us? What he's always told the church, repent, regularly repent, which takes us to this text in 2 Corinthians 7. This is a passage that really is my favorite place to walk through what repentance should look like, how we should respond when genuine sin has been pointed out, when people have been hurt or offended by things that are sinful on our behalf, when things have occurred that have caused genuine heartbreak and it happens because of something we've done or something we haven't done and people have been caused real pain, how do we respond? So by way of quick review, first, or 2 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul refers to, in all of 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to a previous letter that he's written to the church in Corinth, right? You've got this church in this major port city <clears throat> in Greece. And Corinth is the city in Greece where tons of things come in and out. Some of the greatest, some of the, the most popular, most well-known, uh, most renowned thinkers have come through. All the greatest philosophies have come through. The, some of the latest things in theology have come through. Some of the latest fashions have come through. This is a major port city. Imagine New York City or San Francisco uh, or Paris, France. These cities where all of the latest and greatest come through. And the church has been planted in that area. Now, that can be very difficult because all of these competing messages are always there. And so Paul has planted that church and many things have occurred in that church. And we know that there were issues that were going on in that church, so much so that Paul has received letters from people in that area, in that city saying, hey, Paul, here are some things that are going on in the church. There's some real hard things that are happening. There's some sinful things that are happening. There's some painful things that are happening. 
and Paul writes a letter back. That first letter is what we know to be 1 Corinthians, right? The first epistle, the first letter to the Corinthians there, to the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is just correcting so many areas of real sin, so many areas of brokenness, ways in which people have sinned against God, ways in which people have sinned against each other, and real pain that has been caused. And he calls them essentially to repent. He calls them out on ways that they have seen God wrong and seen each other wrong. He calls them out on all of these ways that they have actually harmed one another. And that letter apparently caused them great sorrow. The letter that he wrote uh, in, in 1 Corinthians to them caused them great sorrow. We assume there may have been other letters he wrote and maybe that that was it. But it's likely uh, that this first letter to the Corinthians is the one that really caused them heartbreak or, or pain and sorrow because not because he did something wrong, but because he pointed out some of the things that were wrong in them that needed to change. And so it caused them great sorrow and he confronted them on sin. And he had to do that, right? Because we know this. Why do we get our hearts broken? Why are our relationships strained? Why do we end up having strife and enmity uh, between each other? Because sin, sin stirs up strife. Sin causes division. We are divided from one another because of our own selfishness and the way our selfishness ends up affecting someone else. That's, that's what it is. And it causes real strife. And, it, and, and in this case, it caused uh, folks to be turning away from each other. And there were certain groups that had even turned away from Paul because they didn't like what had been said. And so really, we've got to start answering the questions we brought up before. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to be sorrowful? How do you truly be a sorrowful person? How do you be sorry? And what's the difference between being sorry and being repentant. Let's read uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11. Just three, uh, three or four verses here that just genuinely walk through this. I think this is, I would argue this is the most substantive place in Scripture that talks about how to be sorry, how to be repentant. What does it mean to genuinely do the work that hopefully can lead to reconciliation? So wherever you are, whatever issues you have, Think about the issues that you may have with a spouse, with a family member, with a friend, with a church member, with a congregant. Think about the conflict that's there and don't focus on what they're doing or not. I want you to ask yourself, especially if you have been accused as being the wrongdoer or something relating to you or your family or whatever has, been, has caused pain. I want you to ask yourself, am I actually in accordance with what God prescribes as, a, as how a repentant heart should function, what a repentant posture should look like. Are you truly sorrowful? Are you truly repentant? Or is it something else? 2 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 8. Paul said, For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief 
produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul is really walking through what true repentance should look like. Paul is actually laying out for the Corinthians and for us what our hearts, how our hearts should function when real sin has occurred. If anybody wants to know, how do I, if I've, if I got these issues with a person, how do I make it up? How do I make up, uh, how do I make it up to you? That's a question, well, if we have at least a decent heart and someone's been hurt, that's a question we'll ask, how can I make it up to you? I'm sorry, what, what do I need to do? And hopefully we mean it. And Paul actually says, here is the roadmap for what it means to genuinely want to uh, reconcile and repent. And he basically gives us three links. If there was a chain, three links in the chain. He talks about having genuine remorse. He talks about there being genuine reversal. And, he, and then he kind of shows us what, what it takes in order for genuine restoration. In other words, the fruit of repentance are what it takes to bring about genuine restoration whenever possible. So you've got uh, reversal, I'm sorry, you've got repentance or remorse, you've got reversal, and you've got this restoration piece. And he walks this through. Remember, look back at verse 9, the way that he, oh, well, let me start with verse 8, because there's something here that I think is, we can often miss. Paul points out, I know that my letter made you sad. I know that what I wrote you caused you to grieve, and I don't regret it. It is important that we understand if we feel offended, if we feel grieved, make sure that we are asking the question, but why am I grieving this or why am I sad? Am I sad because something wrong happened to me or am I sad because I don't like how I feel because something wrong in me was exposed? Because it's sometimes, just not every time, but sometimes you might be offended or feel angry because somebody exposed something in you that needed to be changed. And because your identity is so tied to that, you feel like your character has been indicted and now you feel angry because something has been exposed in you. We've said this before and it's very true. Many times exposure feels like assault. And I feel like I've been hit, harmed, or assaulted because of that. And now I become defensive. That is not what this is. Be very careful not to uh, confuse exposure with being attacked because that's not what it is. When sin is exposed, it will feel like you're being attacked and you're going to want to fight back. So if somebody says, hey, you, or something's occurred where you have caused real pain to me, don't respond with defensiveness necessarily. Listen, hey, is there, is it possible that really I did cause real pain? So, so Paul is looking, he's going, listen, the, the litmus test for whether or not this was right or wrong isn't whether or not you feel pain. Sometimes you feel pain because you genuinely are having to deal with things about yourself that you don't want to deal with. That's just a part of the process. 
If someone's working out and they haven't worked out in a long time and all of a sudden their muscles are really sore, does that therefore mean that working out is bad for you because you feel a little bit of pain? No, that pain's necessary. The breaking down of the muscles that need to happen, the slight tearing of the muscles that need to happen so that they are reborn and remade stronger, that needs to happen. That pain is necessary. So some of the pain that you might be feeling because somebody pointed out something is really the muscular pain that you need to feel in order to grow. So Paul is going, my issue is not that y'all were crying and sad. Being, crying, being sad and, and crying alone doesn't necessarily mean something wrong happened. And so he says, starts with that first. I'm glad that it caused you to grieve. That might sound mean. Some, somebody starts crying. I'm so glad they're crying. That sounds mean. I, I thought our, our role is to make sure that every eye is dry at all times. No, sometimes the tears and the shame and the pain that we feel over our own sin is every time is vitally important. And we'll talk about that more. So he says that he says, I'm glad that it caused you. I'm, cl I'm glad that it caused you to grieve. I rejoiced in the fact that in many ways that did it cause you to grieve. I mean, even if I regretted it, and I think what he means there is like, it's not that I feel good seeing you cry. I don't feel good. I'm not happy. Some people get happy and excited to really crush somebody. He's like, I'm, I'm not wanting to crush you, crush you. I saw that the letter grieved you, but I noticed it only grieved you for a while. But now I rejoice. Not because you grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. That's it. I am happy that your grief led to repentance. In other words, I'm happy that your sorry was a godly sorry and not just an earthly sorry. It's so easy to just be like, well, well, I said, I'm sorry. What else do you want? We, we said what we had to say. Those words should have been enough for you. What else do you want? And Paul is like, I'm so glad y'all didn't do that. I'm so glad that you guys didn't just say, hey, we said we were sorry, Paul. We wrote you a letter saying we were sorry. That should be enough. He is saying, I'm grateful. I'm so thankful because that grief, that sorrow, that, that pain that you were feeling, it caused you to genuinely repent. When you look at the word sorrow, depending on the version you're reading, that word sorrow comes up upwards of seven to maybe eight or nine times in those three verses. So please know sorrow is important. Feel, being sorry or feeling sorry or even saying I'm sorry. It's not that we're downplaying that. Sorrow is important, but here's the key, and this is what Paul brings up. We've got to be able to differentiate between a wrong kind of sorrow and the right kind of sorrow. It's important that we do that in ourselves. So again, if somebody comes, please think about this. If somebody comes to you and says, I'm offended or I've been hurt by you, and you go, fine, we'll just say we're sorry. Please evaluate your sorrow. Is it the right kind of sorrow? Is it the kind of sorrow that goes, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that these consequences are having to happen now. I'm sorry that we've got to go through the whole, this whole motion of trying to figure out what to do next. Or maybe I'm sorry that I've got to engage this with you because I already have other issues with you already. And so I really I'm sorry that I even have to do this with you because I wish that I could be talking about the other issues I have with you. If those are the things that you're feeling or thinking, you don't have godly sorrow right now. You're functioning in another form of wrong, sinful, selfish 
sorrow. That's not real godly sorrow. So I can promise you that that sorrow that you're engaging in now, it will not lead into genuine repentance, which means it will not lead to genuine reconciliation with whomever it is that claims to have been offended. So we need to differentiate between the right kind of sorrow and the wrong kind of sorrow. Paul points us to, and he, and he makes usage of this phrase, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. What does godly sorrow look like? You know, we see it in other passages in Scripture. One of the best places I feel you see godly sorrow is in Luke 18, when you see the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the Pharisee walks into the temple? And he's just, he's, just, he's just flexing big for everybody to see, just praying out loud and, and saying things out loud on his high horse, basically saying, God, look at how good I am. Look at all the ways that, that I am so uh, godly and all the ways that I practice things in front of people that shows how godly I am. I'm so thankful I'm not like that wicked tax collector over there. You know, that this is the person who likes to get up in front of everybody and tell and wax eloquent about how godly they are and how wonderful they are and all the great things that they do in the name of God. And then I'm so glad and he brags. I'm so glad I'm not like that one. You know, we can we can do that sometimes. Right. You can even do that when 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 uh, things are pointed out about us that need to change. Well, at least I'm not that. You know when you're not really repentant, by the way, when somebody says, hey, this has happened and it really hurts me and I really want you to stop. And then you respond, well, at least I'm not doing this. You're acting like I'm as bad as that person. That's what a Pharisee does. I, I'm so thankful that I'm so much better than that. So no one should be able to hold me accountable because I'm so much better than this really horrific example of wickedness. So the Pharisee does that. Pharisees there in the temple. Again, just Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. And what does the tax collector do? Tax collector standing a little bit away, some distance away. And he's not even willing to look up to heaven. He's not even willing to even look upon the direction of God because he's so overwhelmed by his own sin. He starts to beat his breast. He beats his chest out loud, just, just mourning his sin. That was this expression of intense sorrow. And what does he say? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So godly sorrow, by the way, begins not with comparing yourself to anybody else. Godly sorrow begins not with looking at what somebody else did, even to you. It starts when somebody brings that allegation, you immediately do this. And when you start to be real with yourself, you're like, Lord, even when I think about how I've sinned against God, I'm like, Lord, I need your mercy all the time because the closer I get to God, the, the more aware I become of my own sin nature. And if I'm more aware of that, that brings humility, which means when you come to me to bring up issues in which I may have harmed you or sinned against you, that humility should bring that mercy about right away. God, give me mercy. Lord, give me an increased awareness of my own sin. Help me to be able to understand how then to repent well with others. What was the reason for the tax collector's sorrow? His sin. That's, that's why that was there. And what does Jesus say? And that man walked away justified. In other words, that man walked away not guilty. The, 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 the stain of his sin is no longer there. So godly sorrow, right? Sorrow according to the will of God is always sorrow over sin, not just sorrow over consequences or sorrow over all the cleanup that's necessary. That's not what godly sorrow is. 
So if you think about what sin is and how it pollutes our thoughts and how it soils our best intentions, that's why the intentions alone can't be enough either. It burdens the soul and it affects us physically. How do I know that it affects us physically? Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Sin ruins us. It ruins our relationships. It had ruined the Corinthians, certain Corinthians relationship with Paul, this apostle that they loved. So the letter he wrote them then caused them sorrow. Sin separates us from God and it separates us from each other. So godly sorrow is always, always, always our first step in actual repentance that brings reconciliation. This is why you cannot have reconciliation without godly sorrow. You can have people forcibly being in the same room together or forcibly remaining in the same relationship together, but there is no real reconciliation happening. They are forcibly in many ways alone together with a different, with a label that says we're reconciled, but there isn't that. If there is no genuine godly sorrow first, there can't be, there can't be repentance. So therefore there can't be reconciliation. So I ask you, do you actually grieve? over your sin. Think about the last time somebody came to you and said, hey, this hurts me, or you've sinned against me. What's your first knee-jerk reaction? Is it, no, nah, that's not me? You have it wrong? What about you? Or is it a genuine, genuine mourning over, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. My sin is causing me to genuinely grieve over it. What does that mean? What does it mean for godly sorrow to lead to repentance? What it means is sorrow is not the end of repentance. It is only the beginning. It's not, I think for a lot of people, they think they're repentant because they were sorry. That's just the beginning. The sorrow is supposed to lead to the repentance. He doesn't say, and I can see you repented because it ended in good sorrow. No, the sorrow precipitates the repentance. It is not the product of the repentance. Is a quote from a pastor. He's 90 years old today, a retired pastor named Richard Owen Roberts. And he has this quote that I think is so important. He says, clearly, where there is a spirit of conviction, there are tears. But while it is good to offer tissues to weeping people, I want to add a word of caution. Do not wipe away those tears before they have finished their work. It's not enough to feel bad. Without repentance, sorrow can only take us so far. And I suspect and I think and I've observed that in our churches, in our worlds, we have actually thought that as long as I am, you know, I show some emotional outpour over something bad, that, that the work has been done. I must be repentant because I'm sad. I must be repentant because I cried. I must be repentant because I said words that sounded like that was repentance. But as far as the actual, that's just the beginning. But the work needs to be done in order for repentance to actually be true. And yes, work takes time, but that needs to be something that is demonstrated. That needs to be something that we see, not just something we hope for, not just something we assume. It's got to be something that is truly demonstrated. 
And that brings us to what he says in verse 10 when he says, uh, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Listen, this repentance without regret, we've said this before, and I promise you, I'm going to say it as often as I'm here, because I think that our culture lives in this, lives by this axiom that says, live a life with no regrets. That is the most, one of the most foolish ways that you can live your life, because a life without regret is a life without repentance. And a life without repentance is a life without reconciliation. So if you were living a life of, of no regrets, I could never trust you. And you should never trust a person who believes in living life without regrets. If we're growing and we're being changed and we're being sanctified by God, then we, the more we get closer to God, the more regrets we should probably have. I'm not saying we walk around self-flagellating and beating ourselves up and feeling bad about ourselves all the time. But what I am saying is, a heightened relationship with Jesus means a deepened understanding of our sin, which means there are more things about which we should be regretful. And that regret will lead to genuine repentance. So when he says a salvation without regret, that's the only place where you should be trying to not have regret in your salvation, in your relationship with God. Not just in my life choices and I want to do things. So basically what we're saying is I want to be able to make whatever choice I make and not have to feel any shame about it. I want to be able to do whatever it is that I do and be able to just say, hey, it made me who I am today. So I can't I can't say I regret it. That's foolish as I'll get out to. That's that's incredibly foolish. I, I don't want to you know, I don't know that I would change that because it made me who I am today. No, wouldn't it be great for you to be who you are today without that having to be the case? Wouldn't it be great for you to actually have the wisdom of God so that, and maybe as we look at even young people and our children, we try to give them wisdom on the front end so that they don't have to live out the experience. There's no question experience is the most, the quickest and the most effective teacher that be, because once it happens to you, you know, but that doesn't mean that is always the, the, the right teacher first, or it shouldn't be the first teacher. The wisdom of others, people who have lived out experiences, giving wisdom, God's wisdom even, that should be what drives us, not just experience. So again, we've got to be super careful about this whole, I want to live life without regrets. I'm going to go out and do what I want to do. And I am who I am today. That cannot be trusted. I'm going to be able to trust you more when you have a, when you know yourself well enough that you have deep regrets over things that you've done or haven't done, because I know that that then those regrets have shaped you and shaped your rhythms of repentance, which means if or when you harm me, I can trust more that you will, you will do and show fruit of repentance with me because you've been through that already because you have regret before. And that regret hopefully has created new rhythms wherein and by which you can seek out genuine reconciliation if and when you harm me. That's, that's how that's supposed to work. So yes, we're imperfect beings and we got all these things that happen. We have things that we do and there are ways that we do things that are wrong and we feel bad about it. And hopefully we regret it enough that, that this repentance becomes true of our lives. Repentance. It's this Greek word metanoia. We've talked about that before, and it means to change one's mind, but be careful. Many folks, even in theological circles, will pretty much kind of leave it to that very simple definition. It just means changing your mind. We see plenty of places in Scripture where that is expanded, where repentance is not just an intellectual change. It includes that. There's no question 
that you cannot be repentant if you don't change your mind about what it is you've done or haven't done. If you don't change your mind about a thing, there may be things that you did that you didn't think were that sinful or that bad, but you can look, but hopefully if you're repenting, you're going, I now know that that thing there is sinful and rooted in my selfishness. Maybe the thing itself by itself may not be sinful, but I know the motivations I had when I did it were. And so I now can look at that and go, that is something that is wrong and I need to change my mind about it. Really in changing your mind, it simply says, I need to think the same things about this thing that God does. That's, that's genuinely what the intellectual aspect of repentance looks like. So there should be an intellectual turning. There should be a thinking differently about it. So let's make it real. You've got a situation and somebody comes to you and says, you did this or you didn't do that. Don't just immediately go, no, they don't understand why I did this this way, or they don't understand why we do things this way, or they don't understand what our intentions were. Stop with that for a minute and look at the, at the thing itself and go, is there something about this that actually is not in accordance with how God functions or is not in accordance with God's heart? Because if it isn't, whatever justification and rationalization I'm using may not be what God thinks. So I may have to stop and go, now, is that rooted in what God actually thinks? If, if real pain has occurred, a real sin has occurred, and I have some justification for why I ought not to pursue this more or why I don't need to figure out a way to fix this, is that actually in line with God's thinking? We need to change our thinking there. There's a story uh, that I came across uh, about a man that you probably know named Steve Madden. Steve Madden, CEO and founder of this really famous fashion company. Uh, Steve Madden was caught in the famous scandal uh, involving Jordan uh, Belfort, the, the guy that's famously known as the Wolf of Wall Street. And in that uh, scandal, Steve uh, had invested with Jordan Belfort's firm, uh, Stratton Oakmont, and they participated in that pump and dump scheme, which uh, ultimately was this illegal inflating of stock uh, that, that uh, as the prices were shooting up and they would resell for profit out ahead of time, and the, the SEC uh, came after them and caught both of them, and they ended up both having to go to prison. There's an interview you can look at on YouTube where Steve Madden is being asked uh, questions about what went down there. And the uh, interviewer asked, do you regret what you did? Steve Madden said, of course, I, I was so consumed with, with money. It controlled my life. To say that I regret what I did would be an understatement. I regret the very desire I had to do it. I regret my consuming desire for money. What was he saying there? Madden was recognizing that his problem wasn't just the things he did, but the motivation behind them. It was his, his heart, his desires that were the problem. The interviewer asked him, after you got out of prison, what changed? And, and Madden responded, well, there's more to success than money. There's legacy and there's impact. I just want to leave behind a positive mark. That's what I live for now. Now, even in that example, right, this isn't like some deep spiritual statement that's being made here, but what does he highlight there? I, I've had time as I was dealing with my consequences to recognize not just I'm so mad at what I did. I'm so mad at what, I, what drove me there. I'm so mad at what it was in me that made me feel like it was okay to approach this this way, that, I, that made me even want to pursue that. That's, that's that, it's like I'm, I'm going deeper into my thinking. I'm so mad that I thought that way. 
It's not just that I did it. I'm so mad. If I said something to you that harmed you and I used words that demeaned you, I'm not just sad that I used those words. I'm sad that, that the way that I think functions in a way that says this is okay. Now you're getting to the sin beneath the sin. And so that intellectual piece is vitally imp important. You, you, you have to have that. You can't, you cannot do that. That the intellectual, and really more, this is a combination, the intellectual and the emotional, right? So the intellectual, we said, uh, to change my mind, to think differently. Then the emotional turning, to feel differently. Madden, this is a huge example. He is really doing the, the work of not just the intellectual, but the feeling differently. I, I hated that I felt like this was something I needed. I felt like this was something that was required of me. So you have the intellectual, the emotional, and then the volitional turning, the actual changing, the actual work that has to be done. You got the, the, the mind work, the heart work, and I feel like we hide behind that stuff so much because when we say, well, it takes time, we act like it's just taking time because so much heart work is still being done. But ultimately, you still need to have the physical work that's being done. I can't speak to what it is you feel or think. I can't know that. But what I can see is the work that's being done to show that. And in reconciling, your thoughts and prayers and your feelings are not enough. You've got to actually show and do actual work, and there has to be real fruit. How do we know that? Look at verse 11. In verse 11, uh, Paul says, for consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, this godly sorrow. C consider that. The, and, and what it has produced in you. And look at what it produced. What a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice in every way. In every way, you have showed yourself to be, to be pure in this matter. Which means there are actual, there's work that you have done that has shown yourself to be pure. You have cleared yourself based on the work that you've done. You realize you didn't just clear yourself because of all the things you said or all the things you expressed uh, that you felt about it. You did things to actually show those things. This is where we get to like the fruit. This is the fruit of restoration. You've done things to show that your own heart and mind has been, has been changed and repentance has occurred and there's a restoration. What are we being restored to? Being restored back to God's heart. Being restored back to the way God thinks. Being restored back to the way God feels and being restored back to the way God acts. And so when that restoration occurs, here's what it should look like. It's not enough for you to just tell people, I'm restored. Let's get, let's make this work again. We're restored now, right? I said I was sorry, right? We, we're sorry that these things happened. Why do we need to keep talking about it, right? Now that, now that you got your stuff off your chest, let me tell you some things about you. No, that's not how that works. The, the reconciliation happens when the, when the person who's been offended looks and goes, that's amazing. It looks like your thinking has changed on this. It looks like the way you feel about this has changed. And also the way that you're acting and the way that you function has changed. That gives me reason to believe that maybe I can trust you again. So, so look at some words that are used here. This is something I, I feel like is so important. He says, look at what's been produced in you. A desire to clear yourselves, basically meaning not, a, not just saying I want to clear my name, a desire to make right what was wrong. 
I want to be clear. In other words, I don't want to be guilty of this anymore. So I want to do whatever, it's ta- whatever it takes so that I can truly not be guilty of this anymore. I have a desire, a desire to clear myself. And then uh, there's, a, there's a, um, a great indignation. This goes back to some of the feeling stuff and thinking. When things are brought up about us and shown to us that there are things that are wrong, whether it's against God or others, again, defensiveness should not be the response. A, a deep hatred for sin should be the response. The best of us get defensive. When somebody comes and says, hey, this happened, hey, this sin happened, and maybe you didn't even mean for it to happen, your high view of yourself is the reason why you get defensive, because you just don't think that that should be true of you, or you don't want to believe that that is true of you. Or maybe it's something that you didn't do, some inaction, something that should have occurred and it didn't happen, some instruction that should have been getting, given and it wasn't given. And so now people are bringing up, hey, your inactivity in this area caused these things to happen. You me, we don't want to believe that we could even be culpable for something like this, so we get defensive. But really, the response should be a deep hatred for sin. I hate, oh, this just reminds me of just how sinful things are. I hate the fact that this sin has occurred because I know what this likely has done. I hate the fact that this is getting ready to, has already stained and damaged. I hate the fact that this is there. I want to make it right. Then he says, uh, he includes, yes, the desire to clear yourself, the indignation, what fear, a deep fear and a deep reverence of what, a fear of God, a a reverence for God, a deep desire to make him known. And and this, I'm so, I have such reverence for God that I am so afraid and so ashamed that this has been displaying something else. I've got indignation. I've got fear. I have a deep longing, and another word that that, uh, corresponds to that, what zeal. Y'all, this is a big thing. You cannot be repentant if you're not zealous about it. That's just it. Stop saying you're repentant if you're not demonstrating a zeal to be repentant. If somebody comes to us and brings up a pain or sin that we've caused them, Don't do the whole, listen, I said, I'm sorry. How long do we got to talk about this? Hey, we've already addressed this already. You sound like you're not even being forgiven because you're bringing it up again. No, if you're zealous about repenting, that as long as that pain is there, you are legitimately saying, okay, what can I do? Okay, I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Let's go back again. Let's go back to the drawing board. What can I do now? That's zeal. That's zeal. What is real zeal? When you think about anything else you'd be zealous about, if there was a concert that you wanted to go to, you see it all the time. Now, maybe not so much uh, during COVID, but we, we would see this, right? When there's a really, really major concert somebody wants to go to, before you could stream stuff to, people would wait outside waiting to get tickets for days sometimes. If you're a shoehead and you knew that the new Jays were coming out, these new Jordans were coming out, you would wait. People would wait sometimes all week for a store to open, camping out just to be able to get uh, Jordans. When the new PlayStation 5 comes out, they're always out of them. The moment they say, hey, Best Buy is going to have PlayStation 5s, people are lined up around the block just waiting. You know what you're witnessing? Zeal. People are like, I know that I got to be at work, but I'm going to take off because I need those shoes. 
I know that I need to be home for dinner, but I'm going to tell my family, hey, I'm going to have to camp out here because I need to get that PlayStation 5. I, I, I know that I'm supposed to be elsewhere or there are other things I should be doing, but I want to go to that concert, so I'm going to wait in line to get those tickets. That's zeal. In other words, if you genuinely are repentant, you will exhaust yourself in order to make it right. You will not look at what, where they are and go, you know, because I'm having to do so much work, I just think that you just must be bitter and not forgiving because I've done too much already. That's now, there's balance in that, there's nuance in that, and there's case-by-case stuff. But by and large, check yourself. Really check yourself and go, am I just, really I'm frustrated because I don't want to be zealous about this. Just be honest. I might be able to intellectually go, yeah, that's not right. And yeah, I, do, I feel bad that this is happening, but I don't feel bad enough to be zealous about it. And this brings us to uh, the difference, really, uh, when we talk about forgiveness and uh, reconciliation, right? Because, and, and repentance. Like, like, forgiveness really doesn't require repentance. Hear me out. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily require repentance. Here's what I mean by that. You, when someone sins against you, it is so important that we don't sit and hold a desire for revenge against that person, a desire to, to square things up with them, a desire to bring recompense to them, a desire to give them their just desserts. See, the idea behind forgiveness, even in the Greek, was when somebody owes a debt, it's my job to make sure that they pay that debt. And oftentimes with, with, uh, with punitive damages. In the court, a lot of times if somebody does wrong, and they, if a company does wrong or somebody does wrong to someone else, they're like, you're going to not only pay the damages to restore what was broken, but we're going uh, to levy punitive damages to ensure that other people know never to do this again. So when we're not forgiving, that's kind of what we do. When we're not forgiving, it's like, oh, no, no. You're going to fix what's broken, and we're going to make sure that there's punitive damages added because I'm going to make sure that you're not going to do this again to anybody else. That's a lack of forgiveness. In other words, forgiveness is giving up your, your right for revenge against the other person. It does not take someone repenting for you to forgive. You may not ever repent and ever be broken over it, but for me, I need to give up my right for revenge. My right to not just, it's different to say, I want you to make this thing right. It's another thing to say, I want you to pay in a way that makes anybody else who looks go, I will never do that again. See, that's God's place, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The kind of punitive damages we want to bring to people, that's not our place. So forgiveness Forgiveness frees the offended, but repentance frees the offender. You don't need to wait for them to repent for you to forgive, but you do. We need to see repentance in order for reconciliation to happen. So it's important not to confuse forgiveness with reconciliation because oftentimes the wrongdoer, and a lot of times the church is taught it this way, the wrongdoer will go, well, wait a minute. Now, we're both Christians and you say that you forgive me. So why can we not re-enter the relationship the way we were before? I said I was sorry. Why can't we re-enter that? 
And the problem is, if there has been no genuine repentance, no godly sorrow, intellectually, emotionally, uh, volitionally, if those things haven't happened, how could anyone feel like I can now enter back into the intimacy of relationship? Because in order for intimacy to be true, vulnerability needs to be there. Trust needs to be there. This, this trust that says I can be vulnerable in the same way I was before and trust that you won't take those vulnerabilities and exploit and or hurt me with them like you did before. The only way that you can even hope to get there is for genuine repentance to have been displayed, not just uh, discussed, but truly displayed. And when that happens, then there's a possibility. It's not always a possibility of reconciliation, right? There are some things, some sins that bring genuine, some, some heavy consequences. And not only do they bring that, they bring heavy uh, impacts. And that's why those consequences are there. In other words, you can do a thing to someone and harm someone in such a way, harm someone in such a way that there are, that the impact is so great that the consequences are so great. And if the impact is great and the consequence is great, then the zeal should be commensurate and match it. So, so here's the thing. If you're not zealous at the level that the impact was so high, then a person goes, well, I, I can't trust that it's safe again to re-engage. See, in the church, we've told people, hey, the godly way to do it is if, if they uh, apologize, then jump back into that relationship the way that it was and just trust God because clearly God's working on them. And a lot of people have been harmed and damaged because of it. If you uh, come from uh, certain types of environments like I have, then you know what it is to be in a church environment that in many ways, um, that in many ways indexes forgiveness above repentance. And really that forgiveness isn't even a type of forgiveness that we would look at biblically. It's more forbearance. Keep overlooking because they said they love Jesus. Keep overlooking because they said they're sorry. Even though this continual pain has, uh, continues or nothing they've done has shown, any of those fruits of repentance are there. But continue. <clears throat> you come from environments like I do and you've seen people get brutalized, uh, abused, and churches say, listen, just keep praying. Keep trusting that God is doing a work in them. And you're showing real, the real heart of God by being forgiving in that sense. And yet the church has little to no real language for. And for the wrongdoer, here's what fruit of repentance should look like. If that fruit of repentance isn't there, do not expect there to be real reconciliation. We, in many, many ways, we encourage people to just jump to reconciliation without real repentance happening. And we then have caused people to really stay in some heavy victimization cycles and then called it uh, uh, Christ-like living. We've called it what discipleship should look like. We have done real damage to one another. And then we gaslight one another and call it forgiveness. Many times when it comes to genuine reconciliation and we're waiting for repentance, the issue is not a matter of time. Yes, there are it takes time to do work, but in many cases, it's not a lack of time. It's not an issue of time. It's an issue of commitment. And the wrongdoer has not committed with real zeal to doing the work that shows fruit of repentance. 
So if you are, when we are in a place where we have been wronged or you have wronged others, number one, don't assume that saying I'm sorry or even some of the actions that I take will guarantee re-entry into the intimacy of the relationship that we once had. That may not guarantee it. And don't try to use scripture to prove to people that it should allow re-entry. It may not. We hope it, it could, but there's no guarantee that it will. And here's why it's important that we harp on that. Because if we believed that on the front end of relationships, we would protect each other better. If I believed that there are things that I could do that carry such an impact, that would therefore carry such a consequence, that there may not be enough zeal in me to be able to, to bring back and restore a level of intimacy to allow us to have real relationship again, I might actually comport myself differently. I might actually realize there are things that I could do that could harm our relationship so greatly that I better make sure I walk correctly here. I better make sure that I'm constantly aware of what's happening on a heart level for me, the way I'm thinking, the way I'm acting. We would actually love each other better if we knew what was at stake on the front end instead of guilting and shaming each other to stay in toxic situations on the back end and call it Christ-like loving. It's not. Y'all, this is one of the most important things we could ever do because our relationship with God shouldn't work this way. Our relationship with God shouldn't work this way. If we know that we're sinning, well, I just know, because this is what happens. We know God is going to keep forgiving me, so I'm going to keep functioning the way I do. And because God is not human and he's not in front of us all the same way, not talking to us the same way, not always uh, engaging with us when we sin against him in the way that a human would, we're like, he's, all, he's that loving grandparent that even when I'm out of line, they're still going to have a plate at the table for me. They're still going to have a, get, let me keep a key to the house. They're still going to be there for me. So because I'm treating uh, God like a Morgan Freeman type God, then and I think everybody else should be able to function the same way. So I treat people that way. It's weird, but in many ways, the way that you're treating others when you've harmed them is likely the way you treat God when you sin against him. That's, that's probably the case. Because the way you repent when you're aware of how you sinned against God should be the model for the way you repent when you sin against one another. But that's not what we do. We don't look at God and go, listen, I know I'm not repentant, but, but you know what I meant in my heart, and you know, maybe we do that, and that's a problem. But ultimately, we shouldn't be looking at God and going, yes, I know I sinned against you. I know I broke your heart. I know these things are, are bad. But God, you, you know me. And you're God. You're going to love me. You're, gonna be, you're always going to be there for me. You told me you never leave me or forsake me. So you know. But what about when we leave and forsake him? Well, that's what repentance is for. God doesn't just say, go and do whatever you're going to do. I, I love you. I got your back no matter what. No. He says, I do love you and I'm here for you. And I love you so much that I've deposited in you the ability to be broken over your sin so that what needs to happen to actually change and bring remedy for that can always happen. So that's the, that's the symbiotic relationship between us, right? My sovereignty and my love and my grace and your sin and your brokenness and your repentance. And that little two-step dance that we do, that's how I change you. Now, the way that you are relating to me, go and relate to one another in the same way. If that doesn't happen, there's a break between us and there will be a break between you all. There cannot be reconciliation outside of that. So let's not create these false forms of reconciliation. 
Let's not encourage false forms of reconciliation. Yes, we need to talk about, there's a whole other sermon to talk about forgiveness and what real forgiveness should look like and how we need to make sure we do give grace. All of that is very important. But what we're going to index right now is what repentance should look like. Because I can assure you, when genuine repentance happens, Forgiveness is right. Forgiveness is far more likely. Not that, again, forgiveness needs to be dependent on it. But and I would say this even more so when right repentance happens, reconciliation is much more likely. True, authentic reconciliation is much more likely. So. How are you sorry? Is are you are you just saying you're sorry or are you actually able to be godly sorrowful? There can be no genuine reconciliation without genuine godly sorrow because that's what leads to real repentance. Anything else we do leads to nothing but more regrets that bring no real fruit. What does it mean to be hugely desiring of change? To be zealous about, think about whatever issues that you might have, issues that you've had in the past that maybe has, they have not uh, been dealt with correctly. Maybe they've not been handled well. Maybe you've got a situation right now that you're dreading. Oh, I don't really feel like talking to this person. I know they have this issue and I, know, I don't really feel like doing that. Um, you know, I already got issues with them already and I don't even know why we should be able to do this because we act like it's a battle of who has the most issues with each other. The battle of offenses, the, the kind of this offense Olympics. Where are you? Y'all, we actually become more like Jesus when we lean into our humility first, when we lean into our own brokenness first, when we lean into a, 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 a heart of repentance first, not a heart of defensiveness. We definitely don't grow in God if we treat him that way, and we can't grow together if we treat each other that way. So may we be a people that are known more for how we repent, May you be, may your, our relationships be rooted in, and, and, and take great joy and have great foundation in the way that we repent, <clears throat> not in the ways that we just overlook everything. Yes, Scripture says it is, uh, there's no question there's a benefit and a blessing in being able to overlook an offense. But there's levels to this, and there are certain offenses that cannot be overlooked because the impacts are so great. So may we be a people that is so broken, first over our sin against God, and then in so doing, our sin against each other. And may we be so broken emotionally. We, we intellectually know that it's sin and we say the same thing about it. And then we're broken over it in such a way that we can do nothing else but really start making real repair, really making real changes zealously with fear and indignation and longing and desire to make things right. Relationships will, will be better. Families will be better. Communities will be better if we're known how we repent and not how we defend. Let's pray. Father, I th thank you that you have given us, <clears throat> you've given us a, a, a clear path to help us figure out what we need to do when we are wronged and also when we wrong each other. <clears throat> God, we are, we're broken and we are often, um, we're often rooted in self. We're often rooted in defensiveness. We're often rooted in maybe uh, how we view ourselves and we don't like hearing things 
that tend to point out other things about ourselves that we have selectively ignored or forgotten about. And God, we need you. We need you to break our hearts and uh, deliver us from far too lofty views of ourselves that keep us from engaging genuine repentance, that keep us from engaging uh, intellectually saying the same things about our sin that you do. They keep us from engaging emotionally the things we should be feeling about our sin that you do. They keep us from engaging volitionally, that, that, that keep us from acting in, against our sin in the way that you do. God, we know that our relationship is not uh, exclusively just us and you. We know that it matters how our love for you starts to play out in our love for one another. And God, if we're honest, many times our love for one another, it's paltry. And it's paltry because we have not engaged your heart properly. So God, give us your heart. Give us your wisdom. Give us a broken heart where we need it. Give us right thinking where we need it. Change our actions. Allow us to be able to see what fruit should look like in accordance with repentance. And God, make us know that even if uh, our acts of repentance don't bring about the relationships that we want, God, help us realize that it is our, our, our relationships uh, are not just contingent on our goodwill. Help us realize the nature of consequences and how there may be consequences that makes it hard for us to re-enter. Give us a humility on the front end so we don't have to find that out on the back end. And Lord, give us a humility if we're on the back end to still continue to pursue genuine repentance, even if we don't get what we want to get as a result. God, let us authentically be pursuing you in all we say and do, because we've, if we do that, we know that we will pursue each other properly. Lord, let that be done for your glory. Let that be done in a way that we are not uh, being uh, abused or victimized or forgotten or unseen or unheard. But make us love well and make us know that we are loved well because of the way that we repent, because of the grace that you give us to repent. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's receive the benediction of God together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen and amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.